0: This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I'm going to be reading you an article and then giving you my immediate reaction. This article has definitely been making the rounds, and so I know it's been making the rounds in some of your circles as well, but I'm not going to tell you where the article appeared just yet. I'm going to give you the title. I'm going to read it to you. It's not that long, and then we're going to break it down. So the name of the article is Why Sex Work is Still Work. Yes, the title is "Why Sex Work Is Still Work." So this is an op-ed, and the person's name is really hard to uh, pronounce. I'm just going to spell it. First name is T L A L E N G. Last name M O F O K E N G. So this is uh, the founder of Nalane for re- Reproductive Justice, um, and this is basically an opinion piece that's explaining why she believes that sex work should be decriminalized all the way across the, the globe and across the world. So. This is what we're going to be getting into here, so let's go ahead and get into the article. The government of Amsterdam, a city known worldwide for its red light district, will ban the popular guided tours through that area starting in 2020. The ban stems in part from complaints calling the tours a nuisance that lead to congestion in the narrow canal side streets. But city officials have also said the ban is out of respect for sex workers. It is no longer acceptable in this age to see sex workers as a tourist attraction, city councilor Udu Koch said, according to The Guardian. There's one problem. Many sex workers are opposing this plan. Sex work is legal in Amsterdam, but it isn't in many other places, though some people are working to make it so. In South Africa, where I am based, for instance, sex workers are calling for de- decriminalization and legal reform. They argue that sex work is work, as affirmed by the International Labor Organization, the ILO, a specialized agency of the United Nations. This situation in Amsterdam and the continued uh, criminalization of sex workers around the world is yet another example of how we disregard the needs and opinions of the people most impacted by policies. But even more so, it's another example of how we misunderstand what sex work actually is. I am a doctor an expert in sexual health, but when you think about it, aren't I a sex worker? And in some ways, aren't we all? So what exactly is sex work? Not all sex work workers engage in penetrative sex, though undeniably, this is a big part of sex work. Sex worker uh, services between consenting adults may include companionship, intimacy, non-sexual role-playing, dancing, escorting, and stripping. These roles are often predetermined and all parties should be comfortable with them. Many workers take on multiple roles with their clients and some may get more physical while other interactions that may have started off as sexual could evolve into emotional and psychological bonding. The clients who seek sex workers vary, and they're not just men. The idea of purchasing intimacy and paying for the services can be affirming for many people who need human connection, friendship, and emotional support. Some people have fantasies and kink preferences that they are able to fulfill with the services of a sex worker. I find it interesting that as a medical doctor, I exchange payment in the form of money with people to provide them with advice and treatment for sex-related problems, therapy for sex performance, counseling and therapy for relationship problems, and treatment of sexually transmitted infection. Isn't this basically sex work? I do not believe it is right or just that people who exchange sexual services for money are criminalized and I am not for what I do. Is a medical degree really the right measure of who is deserving of dignity, autonomy, safety in the workplace, fair trade, and freedom of employment? No, this should not be so. Those who engage in sex work deserve those things too. Today, online spaces and apps make the interactions and negotiations safer for women sex workers, as opposed to soliciting sex outdoors, where the threat of community and police harassment remains a concern. Recent legislation in the United States makes that makes it harder for sex workers to advertise online, however, has complicated this. Apps also make it less intimidating for women who are clients to screen and meet potential sex workers to cater to their needs. Still, continued criminalization of sex work and sex workers is a form of violence by governments and contributes to the high level of stigma and discrimination. A systematic review of meta-analysis led by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, for instance, has found that sex workers who have experienced repressive policing, including arrest, extortion, and violence from police, are three times more likely to experience sexual or physical violence. But governments often fail to accept the evidence for the economic and social basis for sex work. The ILO estimates that sex workers support between five and eight other people with their earnings. Sex workers also contribute to the economy. Governments ignore the nuanced histories and contexts in different countries and thus continue to wrongfully offer blanket solutions and rescue models that advocate for partial decriminalization or continued criminalization. They also ignore the wishes of sex workers who want full decriminalization, as supported by the Global Commission on HIV and the Law and the Lancet, as well as human rights organizations like Amnesty International. Global efforts towards decriminalization have been growing in some countries, such as South Africa. Here, it is led by the biggest sex worker movement, Sasaki, sorry, I don't know how to spell uh and the advocacy and policy work of SWEAT. These efforts are mirrored by the global network of sex worker projects and the Dutch Union for Sex Workers. In July 2018, at the International AIDS Conference in Amsterdam, I joined colleagues and allies and marched in solidarity with PROUD as they delivered a memorandum to city officials, demanding protection of the right of sex workers to work in safe working conditions. The moment was important in invigorating the global movement for decriminalization. Sex workers must be affirmed through upholding and the protection of their human rights to autonomy, dignity, fair labor practices, access to evidence-based care, and others. It is for this and many other reasons that I believe sex work and sex worker rights are women's rights, health rights, labor rights, and the litmus test for intersectional feminism. Further, the impact of continued criminalization of the majority of sex workers, most of whom are cisgender women and transgender women, mean that sex workers' rights are a feminist issue. If you support women's rights, I urge you to support the global demand for sex work decriminalization and fund evidence and rights-based intersectional programs aimed at sex workers and their clients. We must support efforts to address structural barriers and ensure the implementation of a comprehensive package of health services for sex workers as advised by the World Health Organization and fund public campaigns to decrease stigma. Evidence, not morality, should guide law reforms and sex work policy for full sex work decriminalization. So that's the end of the article there. Oh man, I feel like I got dumber just reading that for like the last six minutes or so. But anyway, we'll we'll kind of move past that. So again, as I told you from the top, I gave you the article, I gave you the name of the article, but what I didn't do. And before, I guess, before we get into me ripping this garbage article to shreds, I need to point out one little teensy weensy important thing. And that is where this was published. This article was published in teen... Vogue magazine. That's again, teen Vogue magazine. An article basically saying two thumbs up for sex work appeared in a publication that is aimed at little girls, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 year old girls is the demographic of the readership for teen Vogue magazine. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more here at the end. But that's at least a little bit concerning, isn't it? Especially for my dads out there listening. But there there's so much in this article that could be broken down, but there's just a few sections that I think are going to be most important for us to kind of go over. So I'm going to pull those sections out, I'll reread those short sections to you, and then we'll talk a little bit about it there. So, uh, and these are going to be in order so you can find them later on if you're scanning through the article. So here's the first quote I want to talk about here. Quote: I am a doctor an expert in sexual health. But when you think about it, aren't I a sex worker? And in some ways, aren't we all, unquote? What is she even talking about? Okay, so so here's the thing. Is if you've got like half your brain remaining in your head, the thing where she says, "Aren't I just a sex worker because she works in sexual health?" Yeah. You could probably see that. You could probably say, okay, yeah, you're a person that's an expert in sex and you work on it. So you could say you're a sex worker, but obviously in the context of this article, as she says throughout sex worker means somebody who is paid to give people sexual favors most of the time, which is penetrative, right? But when she says, and in some ways, aren't we all, where is she getting off, including all of us, in our respective fields and our respective things that we're experts at, or the things that we at least have experience in, where in the world is she getting this idea that aren't we all sex workers? Because the idea in my head that comes to mind when I think about a sex worker is somebody that works in the sex industry. Someone that sells parts of their bodies to other people or for the eyeballs of other people, right? That's what I think of. So you can see at the beginning of this, this is a very kind of easy slide of hand for someone like this, but they're trying to bring us all into the story, right? They're, it's, it's almost like whenever you're, you're afraid that you're going to take the blame for something, you start to spread it around a little bit. And so she's trying to make this grandiose statement that, Hey, we're all in this together. We're all in this big, large group. We could all be sex workers, So, but if you have a fully developed adult brain, you can obviously read that and say that, okay, that's, that's pretty darn ridiculous. So this next section here, this is a little bit like that quote before, but I'll go ahead and give you this and then we'll go ahead and get into it. So here's a quote. I find it interesting that as a medical doctor, I exchange payment in the form of money with people to provide them with advice and treatment for sex related problems, therapy for sexual performance, counseling and therapy for relationship problems and treatment of sexually transmitted infection. Isn't this basically sex work? I do not believe it is right or just that people who exchange sexual services for money are criminalized and I am not for what I do. Is a medical degree really the right measure of who is deserving of dig- dignity, autonomy, safety in the workplace, fair trade, and the freedom of employment? No, this should not be so. Those who engage in sex work deserve those things too, Unquote. So obviously she kind of makes at the beginning side of that, she says, isn't this basically sex work? No, it's not basically sex work because you talk to people about sexual performance. I mean, she would, what does she say? Because I've mentioned the word sex on this podcast and I'm a sex worker. It's, it's nonsense. It's a ridiculous thing. But again, she's lamenting the fact that her profession is not criminalized. But at no point do we have any indication that she's tried to change the law to make that the truth. She wants to decriminalize sex work, but she also at the same time is including what she does, which is legal in the category of sex work. So wouldn't she just be just as happy to criminalize what she's doing? I mean, why isn't she going? She's from South Africa. Why isn't she going to the local magistrates or people that create the legislature over there and say, Hey, I would like to be criminalized for the things that I'm doing. That would be absurd. They'd probably laugh her right out of the courtroom, but at the same time, isn't that kind of the same thing that she's wanting? It's a silly, silly statement for her to make, but she's making it. Again, that's attached to the last one, but let's go ahead and move on here to the next quote. So here we go. Quote, still continued criminalization of sex work and sex workers is a form of violence by governments and contributes to the high level of stigma and decriminalization. Okay. That's unquote, unquote there. So, um, here's the thing. This is one of those people. This is obviously someone that's on the the very far left, the fringes of the left, even That thinks speech is violence, or that certain laws criminalizing things that are on the spectrum of morality, good and bad morality, that that is somehow violence. So, just in case you've never heard this quote before, I'm not coming up with this quote myself. I didn't come up with this. But here's the quote Speech is not violence. Words are not violence. I can say, I'm gonna punch you in the nose. That is not akin to me punching you in the nose. Now, if I say, I'm going to punch you in the nose, and then I do it, it's kind of like, hey, I gave you a hint. (laughs) You knew this was coming. But this is another attempt by her to pretend as if we are harming mainly these women that are selling their bodies to other people. That somehow the fact that we keep it illegal makes it a a very, uh, carry kind of this negative stigma. That somehow making this illegal is akin to discrimination. But if she were in front of me, I would ask her, discrimination in what way? Like, like, what do you mean? And she would probably respond with, well, this is their chosen profession and this is how they chose to make money and how they want to make money. And we'll deal with that want part here more in a little bit, but let's go ahead and get into the next quote here. Quote, Governments ignore the nuanced histories and contexts in different countries and thus continue to wrongfully offer blanket solutions and rescue models that advocate for partial decriminalization or continued criminalization. They also ignore the wishes of sex workers who want full decriminalization, Unquote. So here's the thing. She, at the very beginning of that, she's saying, oh, well, you, we just don't understand the nuance, but, but clearly she does that this this lady understands the nuance she understands fully the nuance histories and contexts in different countries she's the one that we should be listening to this person who's writing for 14 vogue she's obviously a mental and intellectual heavyweight but the interesting thing at the end is she says they also ignore the wishes of sex workers who want full decriminalization so you're telling me that criminals want what they're doing to break the law, to be decriminalized? You don't say. I wonder if people that run drugs wish it was decriminalized. Now it would affect how much they're able to sell their products for because that's just basic market economics. But at the same time, what point are you making here? They also ignore the wishes of sex workers who want full decriminalization. I bet they do. I bet the ones that are, that are fully in there, especially the men that are typically running these women, would prefer for that to happen, right? Unless taxes get involved and all those different things. But th- this is such a silly thing that it's, oh, weird. Criminals want their crimes to be decriminalized. It's, it's just another sentence that literally ends up nowhere. It's just kind of another circular argument. But let's go to the last couple of quotes here. So here's the, uh, the second to last one. Quote, sex workers must be affirmed through upholding and the protection of their human rights to autonomy, dignity, fair labor practices, access to evidence-based care. It is for this and many other reasons that I believe sex work and sex worker rights are women's rights, health rights, labor rights, and the litmus test for intersectional feminism. It's that last sentence there that really, I think actually did actively kill brain cells, brain cells in my head. Like it's hard to even put words together at this exact moment, but she's drawing an unbelievable connective line here, an unbelievable line. And that line is the line between prostitution and women's rights. As this, this is something that we should be championing That if you're a first, second, or third wave feminist, or if you're someone that's just in in support of feminist ideas, that this is an idea that we all need to get behind. But she turns it into this gigantic category of women's rights, health rights, labor rights, and this one, which is just one of the dumbest phrases in the history of the planet. The litmus test for the intersectional feminism. Wow. The litmus test for intersectional feminism. It's just incredible. I mean, you could probably, there are probably entire studies, uh, entire sectors of gender studies that you could dedicate just to that one incredible sentence. But again, it's this idea that we need to affirm these women. We need to affirm these quote unquote choices that they've made to get into this line of work. More on that here in a little bit, but let's go ahead and get into the last quote here. Quote further the impact of continued criminalization of the majority of sex workers, most of whom are cisgender women and transgender women, mean that sex worker rights are a feminist issue. If you support women's rights, I urge you to support the global demand for sex work decriminalization and fund evidence and rights-based intersectional programs aimed at sex workers and their clients. Unquote. So, we should join in and support these individuals. And the thing is, is she's trying to draw a line between people that think that this is a good idea and people that don't think this is a good idea. Cause she says, if you support women's rights, dot, 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 which I think everyone listening to this podcast supports women's rights, right? Because the overwhelming majority of my listeners here are Christian men, right? And if you're not a Christian, we're ecstatic that you're listening into this. We hope that you're getting something out of it. But of course we understand that women's rights are appropriate because we understand that women have the Imago Dei. We understand that. They have the image of God written on their souls. They're owned by him. Their their souls were purchased at the cost of Jesus' life. We understand that. But to someone like this, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this person's probably a secular humanist, probably an atheist or agnostic. What is her basis for women's rights? I mean, where, where does she get her paradigm? It makes no sense. But, The thing about this article is that Teen Vogue, I think they knew what they were doing. I think they knew whenever they put this out that they were going to get some flack and obviously they've been receiving severe amounts of flack for this, but this is the same publication that back in 2017 brought us the, you know, incredible article, Anal Sex, What You Need to Know. Again, this is Teen Vogue, 12 to 16 year old girls is who's reading this. Anal sex what you need to know. And the thing is is back in 2017 if you were paying attention, if you res- express any negativity towards that article, you already know where this is going. It's because you're homophobic. Ah. So if you think it's inappropriate for a magazine to post an article Telling you about the internal and external things that could happen during anal sex, and you're a young girl. If you express any dissent to that, oh gosh, you're just a homophobe. The, the thought of anal sex to you just seems to be so so bad, right? That was their main their main line of argumentation. But again. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that you can deal with and there's a lot of worldview implications for an article like this. And it's certainly been making the rounds, you know, by the time you're listening to this, it's probably going to be a week or two. Uh, you know, just we've moved on to the next crazy thing that's happened, but there are several key observations that I wanted to make from this that I think is especially pertinent to our audience here. Okay. So the first key observation is this almost 100% of the women in sex work would rather be doing something else. I mean, how many of these people, when they were little girls, whenever they're going around and the teacher's like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And little Jimmy's like, I want to be an astronaut. And little Jenny's like, I want to be a teacher. And then you ask, you know, little Rachel. And she's like, I want to, I almost said something crude. I want to have sex with people for money. Like, I mean, they, they, it's so flummoxing. Like I'm sitting here, like stumbling over my words. Like, what do they think these women want to be doing? I mean, you can just <laughs> look on the internet and look for these these articles and these stories and these YouTube videos of these women that have been saved mainly by ministries or by other types of people and, and been rescued from sex work of all kinds and listen to the deep amounts of regret that these women have. The entire time, they didn't think they had another option, right? They didn't think there was another option out there for them. They were uneducated they were poor. Maybe they had family to support, right? And so this was something where, you know, they were able to make what would a lot of people would consider to be really, really good money. And all they had to do was sell their bodies. But to, to make this implication that the majority of these women want to be doing this is absurd and gross. And the second key observation is this, is that the majority of women in sex work have suffered from some form of sexual or mental abuse. And, and the majority of them are, are currently, that are, that are currently in this line of work, are suffering from sexual and mental abuse. They, they have pimps or they have, they have people that are controlling them that, that are keeping them locked down. You know, Hollywood and and other people and other kind of like fringy feminists want to make it seem like this is just a really controlled environment that you go into this very sterile and clean environment, you know, put your money into the slot and you walk into the room and you have a, you shake hands and you say, hi, this is me. Hi, this is you. You know, what would you like me to wear for this particular occasion? And then you go in there, you get your jollies off and then you move on with your day. Under what circumstances could you possibly believe that that's how this goes? Now, you're listening to this from a guy that has never participated in this particular line of work, never been to a strip club, never even been around a prostitute as far as I can tell, but the idea that these women are just fully healthy and still choosing to do this is rich. It's absolutely rich. The fourth observation I want to talk to you about is this, is that society is moving towards the normalization of pedophilia, and this is just another step in that direction. And now obviously this seems like a pretty, uh, pretty sizable shift up here, but you just have to think about this guys. Again, this is teen Vogue magazine. I, again, follow me here. Follow me. This is teen Vogue magazine. And this is an article that essentially is encouraging girls below the age of 18. Most of which are quite a bit below the age of 18, encouraging them to get into sex work because they're normalizing it. Hey, 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 you know that some people go out and they're busters at Outback or they're, you know, they're helping people clean up stuff at the golf course or, you know, maybe they, they got an internship with an accounting firm. But you know what? You could always just, you know, pull off your top, have people pay for it, give you $1 bills, you get enough of those, you'll be fine. A few lap dances a night, that'll help pay the rent. But the big thing about it here is one of the things that predators love are underage individuals that believe that is what is happening to them is normal. Follow me. Again, follow me here. Because one of the things that pedophiles do, you can see this, it's all over the literature and the research here with pedophiles, is they are trying to groom the people, the young boys and the young girls over time so that they can eventually take advantage of them sexually because for a lot of these individuals for a lot of these young people let's just talk about young girls if you were to just go right into the things that you eventually do with these girls from the very beginning it's going to seem so otherworldly and so shocking and scarring that it's probably going to be a negative reaction you're probably going to get caught because they're probably going to tell somebody but you see this overwhelming amount of time and effort spent by these pedophiles to normalize their presence first Normalize the fact that, you know, it's just normal that this person is around. And then it's just normal that this person's going to hug you a little bit longer than other people do. That it's normal that this person is going to touch you in areas and in ways that no one else does. And so on and so forth. Don't worry, I'm not going to go all the way with that particular line of thinking. But this is the best thing that a pedophile could think of because that's got to really try your patience if you're a pedophile, right? Because you you just want to get your jollies off as quickly as possible, but if you have to spend weeks or months kind of normalizing and grooming this individual, gosh, it just kind of keeps you from getting to where you want to be, right? But whenever they think that this is normal, that if you just take payment as if this is just some sort of a service that you provide, right, then that's great and society is doing a lot of things. Now I'll probably do an entire podcast episode on the future in this, but it seems like drag queens are everywhere right now, right? You know, we have drag queen story time at libraries and we have, you know, nine-year-old boys that are, you know, world famous as drag queens. Now these highly sexualized forms of women, even though they are boys or young men, but if we normalize it, it's not going to be that big of a deal. And people always, whenever you start making the slippery slope argument, argument, they're like, oh gosh, here we go. This conservative Christian making the slippery slope argument. Here we go again. But the thing about it is, is that's how the world works. Because when you push past a certain line and that line becomes established, you can continue pushing past the new line that you've established. That's how slippery slopes work. Because there were things that, you know, one generation ago were absolutely unfathomable. You know, think about gay marriage. that was unfathomable one generation ago, and now it's old hat. Right now, it seems unfathomable that we would think that polygamy is something that we should be able to do. But if love is love, right? if love is just love, then, then why can't a man have more than one wife? Why can't a, you know a woman have more than one husband? And then the line eventually is pushed to, well, if love is love, and I'm a 30 year- old man and you're a 15-year-old girl, well, that's enough for consent, right? We love each other. I mean, if love is love, right? You see what I'm saying? These arguments are absurd, but this is where society is pushing you. When society doesn't have anything to anchor itself to, namely a God that gave us these rules for morality, then we just have to make it up. And we make it up based on logic and reason alone, which takes us down this path. And the last observation I want to make for you guys here is dads, you better be paying attention. There's a lot of dads listening to this right now, and you've got little girls. Are they reading Teen Vogue? Are their friends reading Teen Vogue? Are they reading articles about anal sex, about sex work, about how to pleasure their boyfriend, how to do all these different things that adults do? What are they reading, guys? What are their friends reading? What articles are they sharing back and forth? What types of pictures are they sharing? You know, those pictures that dis- disappear after a day on Snapchat? What's in those pictures? Do they have a boyfriend? What kind of pictures are they sharing back and forth? What kind of things are they talking about? Because guess what, guys? Once they get outside of the bubble of your house, they're in society's bubble. And in society's bubble, you get stuff like this article normalizing sex work, prostitution, stripping, escorting, all those things just normalizes it. So this is my encouragement to you dads. And again, I'm giving advice to dads, even though I don't have kids myself, right? But if I'm wrong, tell me, otherwise it's, it's probably just good advice. You got to be on top of this and you got to be on top of this from an early age. And I'm not excluding the boys here because there, there are obviously other concerns with the boys. But the statistics on girls and boys, especially around things like pornography are damning. The age that these youngins are looking at pornography keeps getting younger and younger every year. Eventually it has to stop just because of, you know, that's the way the world works. I mean, you can't really have a one-year-old doesn't really know what that looks like, right? But it just keeps getting younger and younger. And so through pornography, things like hardcore sex are being normalized in the minds of these girls. That's what the research says as well. It's because they're basically getting their cues, right? They're getting their cues from what they see on these videos. And they're seeing these, these hardcore pornography images or, or videos that basically say, oh, if I'm the girl in this scenario, I need to, I need to want this and I need to, need to be in pain, but enjoy it. I need to do all these things, right? Because that's normal. Oh, you know, if my boyfriend wants to have anal sex, it's just, well, I read that article and I kind of know what to expect now. So, so let's just go ahead and do that. Oh, you know, protection is one thing, but you know, I don't really want to be limited. Right. And so if I really want to be with somebody at that exact moment and there's no protection available, you know, I should still be able to make that decision because, you know, bodily autonomy and and whatnot, you know, but guys, we've got to get real. Our our girls are going to be exposed to so many things and we won't be around. If you're an uncle out there or if you've got best friends that have got daughters, like you've got to share this type of information around, share this podcast, share these articles that I'm going to share with you in just a second, because we've got to be aware because I know a lot of guys are just aloof you just don't know exactly when the other foot's going to drop and you're just trying to make sure that you keep your head above water and you keep your job and you keep your wife off your back and you you know you keep the lawn mowed and you keep all these different things sometimes you forget that you need to protect the people that can't be can't protect themselves like your daughters so for all you fathers out there be dutiful like they live in your house for the most part right so the phone that they have is not their phone it's your phone So you go through that whenever the heck you want to, you don't need my permission by any means, but I do know guys out there that are absolutely afraid of their teenage daughters. And for good reason. I mean, I, in my own family, my sister doesn't even talk to my dad, hasn't talked to him for like two decades. Right. And the guy never did anything to her. So since she was a teenager, she just decided that she wasn't going to have a relationship with my father. I mean, (sighs) It's inexplicable. So I I understand logically why some of you guys out there are so afraid of your daughters, how they can just make you feel so small. But that is your daughter. You have been charged with protecting her. Your wife can't protect her the same way that you can. So allow this to be the encouragement to you guys that society is going to continue to teach these things to them. You have to do enough things to counteract the nonsense that they're being spewed all right guys before we get out of here we're going to do a quick resilience boost as you know why by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience specifically we do that by providing content that forges spiritual mental and physical toughness so today i want to kind of give you a rundown i obviously am going to include the teen vogue article called sex work is real work but there's a couple of opinion pieces that were written in response to this one is by national review or it was written on national review it's called teen Vogue's support of sex work is delusional and dangerous so that's a good one there and then there's another one from the USA Today, which says, Hey, Teen Vogue, on career day, no young girl should say I want to be a prostitute. So I thought those were two uh, very well done responses to this article in addition to what we gave to you today. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. As you know, by now, we would love for you to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If you use the hashtag Undaunted Life, we will eventually find your post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please, please leave us one. That is how the algorithm is going to know that we should get out to more people. Leave us a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the rest of 2019 and the beginning of 2020. So if you want me to come speak to your team, to your men's group, on your podcast, whatever, hit me up via email. Info at undaunted.life. That's INFO at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life, and you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at undaunted life or Facebook.com backslash undaunted life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band, August Burns Red, for allowing us. To use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.